It's late at night and I'm walking along a deserted country lane without a torch. I'm just wondering if my newly unfamiliar surroundings, they're made uncanny by the lack of light. Are they helping me to think in new ways? I'm feeling hyper alert, but not in a good way. And I'm certainly not lost in any creative thoughts. Everything is encroaching. It sounds louder, even my breathing does, and the atmosphere feels a little threatening. And I'm, I think, distracted by what I can't see. Walking at night is different to other forms. It has a sort of political edge to it. So many terrible things have happened in recent years to women who've exercised their right to do it, and why shouldn't we feel able to do it? But I can't say I'm particularly enjoying this walk. My thudding heartbeat, my extreme vigilance, and the sharp crack of a twig. So would walking in the company of someone else be better? I'm meeting the writer Duncan Minchell for a night walk in London. Duncan's the editor of five anthologies about walking. The latest is Where My Feet Fall, with essays by writers such as Kamala Shamsi and Richard Ford, and Duncan's introduction, which explains why we might want to walk at night. As the light fades, a familiar unease. Should we even be walking some streets? Someone else is in the gloaming. Virginia Woolf seeking a shop that will sell her a pencil even if this is an excuse to wander far and savour changes at street level under growing lamplight. The trick is to pass, dally, stop, as the mind wanders too, reacting to shifts of colour, altered states of offices and houses, and sightings of residents at illuminated windows. What do these lives hold? A simple shopping trip becomes expansive and complicated, and Wolf realises we are no longer ourselves once the dusk thickens to darkness. Duncan and I meet by the canal in Little Venice before striking out for St John's Wood. There's an Edward Hopper mood in the air, only one or two other people around, strangely shadowed by street lamps and the constant accompanying hiss and slush of anonymous cars passing, despite the hour. Yes, I think everything transforms when you're out at night. The things you look at, the things you hear. I think even smells are different at night as well. I mean, there's an old sort of tale, isn't there, that lions roar a lot at night because lions know that their sound carries more clearly at night, and therefore they sound more ferocious. Not lions tonight, of course, but plenty of smaller night creatures. Oh, the fox. Whoa. Quite a young-looking fox. Lovely-looking one. They usually look a bit scruffy here, but he must be very young, or she must be very young. I once walked down the Harrow Road at one o'clock in the morning and saw nine foxes nine. in the space of an hour's walk down the Harrow Road, unless I saw the same fox nine times. Many writers love walking at night. Henry Thoreau, William Blake, Thomas de Quincey, Dorothy Wordsworth. But while it makes the senses hyper alert, does it freeze the creative brain? Yeah, I think it can be a bit contradictory because you think, you know, you go out at night, everywhere will be empty. 
and uh, there'll be nothing to distract you physically. You know, you won't be looking at other people's faces or dodging the traffic so much. So you'd have more thinking time on your feet. But actually, perhaps you don't because you're not thinking, but your imagination takes over in the dark. You're, th you're actually imagining <laughs> somebody might come out and get you by the neck or you might be unlucky with the one solitary car that's going to come and um, confront you or something like that. So I don't think intellectual thought as much as at night. It gets swamped by the imagination, you know, the instinct of um, thinking the worst at night. A sort of mild paranoia, perhaps. I don't feel that all the time. I feel very comfortable walking at night, but I think that's because I'm a, a man, and I'm usually walking in London down familiar roads and familiar streets. So while we might think that we're entitled to walk at night, why should we not? That we should be able to reclaim the night and do as we please? There have been just too many terrible, terrible stories emerge from this night walking. So unless you're going to do what Georges Sand did, which was to dress up as a man and then go out walking at night, that's one method. Very good idea, We're just going it? under an underpass. You know, what, what else can be done? It's historical as well, isn't it? Um, a man was out at night. He was bad. And if a woman was out at night, she was mad. That's, that, those were the two sort of um, distinctions. Or she'd fallen on hard times. You know, she'd been kicked out of somewhere. She was a streetwalker. But it was always the negative, you know, a hundred years ago, certainly women out at night were seen in a negative way. And it's not quite that now, but the dangers, you know, something might happen to them. That's as pertinent now as it was sort of 150 years ago. And there's the constant problem. Although I should be able to walk at night, I choose not to most of the time. And I understand why Charles Dickens, in his essay Night Walks, terrified himself by watching a man in an all-night coffee house with cadaverous fingers tug a huge meat pie out of his hat. Dickens is part fascinated, part horrified, as the man stabs the pudding with a large dagger, wipes the gravy-stained blade on his sleeve, and then tears the pie with his bare hands. The night hour, the lack of light, seemed to make the pie-stabbing more carnivorous, the sleeve-wiping more grotesque. Even when walking takes place in the greater safety of daylight, walking's always been a revolutionary act. You know, it goes right back to Jane Austen. You know, I mean, Elizabeth Bennet, Pride and Prejudice, was a great walker. For her, it was an act of rebellion. It got her out of these sort of rather fusty drawing rooms where her mother and father were trying to marry her off. She scarpered, basically. For her, it's a sort of act of rebellion, and she gets her reward at the same time, meeting Darcy. Oh, uh, but if you go on beyond Jane Austen, I mean, there's lots of walking in George Eliot, Virginia Woolf, George Orwell. Of course, I've missed out Charles Dickens. There's quite a lot of walking in his novels, not just his non-fiction. Well, there's that very famous walk, obviously, of Bill Sykes, after he's murdered Nancy. Yes. He walks all day, all night, all the next day to try and run away from the crime. But in the end, it's sort of London almost calls him back, sort of drags him back. 
And somebody like Magwitch, Great Expectations, he's almost like a creature of the night. I think Pip encounters him either at dawn or at one end of the day. And you just know that as he looms up, Dickens probably envisaged him a creature of the night or a creature of the murk. Complete one off and Fagin, you know, scampering around London, he was probably a creature of the shadows or the ill light. Well, we've come to the end of Hamilton Terrace now, one of the longest residential streets in London. But it's wonderful. It's also a great example of, you know, at night the street is laid bare. You can see the contours of it, the way it slopes and turns more. The trees look like something else or something different. These huge plane trees that London has a lot of. The plane trees are top-lit by the lampposts, which gives them this really strange sort of skeletal rather uncanny, hopper-esque appearance. But also the shadows themselves, which are cast onto the pavement by the leaves of the trees, very sort of moody. But it feels as though there's nobody around. Obviously there's traffic, we can hear cars all right, that's for sure. But there's no sense of any people being in no, the street. There's also this thing Virginia Woolf goes, goes on about night haunting, that great walking essay she wrote about looking into the windows and speculating on people's lives the other side. She says something like, what goes on in there? As she peeps through the windows, this is, um, she makes that great walk from um, Fitzrovia down to the Strand. And her excuse for this long walk is to go and buy a pencil from stationers. But Really what she's doing is snooping through people's windows, speculating on their lives. Actually, if we try and snoop through any windows, they're all kind of set back behind privet hedges and lots of curtains are drawn. Actually, look, here's, look, here's a window with no curtains. You just have a little peer in there. But again, this, we can see into somebody's front room, but again, it doesn't feel like there's anybody in there. It's very elegant and there's a television on, but there's nobody watching it. Is it the Dutch who deliberately don't draw their curtains, keep their windows open at night? It's a way of saying, yes, look into the soul of my house. Something That's very like generous that. of them. It is very generous of them. Well, this house, they don't have a Dutch spirit. I mean, that hedge outside this house, the hedge is about 12 feet tall maybe 10 feet tall. They really don't want anybody looking. It doesn't even look like a real hedge, does it? No, it, it does look like yeah. a sort of square-shaped lump of green plastic. Secrets behind the hedge. And you're right about the lighting. It's all up lighting, so it makes these um, mansion houses even more magisterial looking. And they're all about three or four floors. And that one looks the size of a hotel. Yeah. In fact, didn't... Um, Sigmund Freud stay in a hotel around here. But I think Freud was around here for a while. And the odd thing about Freud staying in that hotel, before it was a hotel, it was a hospital. And it was where Alan Turing was born. That's right. Weirdly. Yeah. 
it's down, down towards Maidavale a bit more. I think it's called the Colonnade or something like that. Sid Vicious used to live in St John's Wood as well. I think Sid Vicious was a walker. Can't quite see it somehow. He was a totterer. A totterer or a loller. Yeah. So what's the longest walk you've ever done? I was on an assignment for Condé Nast Traveller magazine and they said, where do you want to go in the world? And I said, I want to go to South Shropshire. <laughs> uh, Ludlow, round there, Knighton. Uh, what was the um, thinking behind asking for Shropshire? Um, it's the second emptiest county in England, so I thought, why not walk it? After Northumberland, that is. I had a great time, height of summer. The little sea roads, the ones that are just slightly smaller than the B roads, you could walk up and down endlessly for hours because there's virtually no traffic. You just keep bumping into the, the postman in his van two or three times. A bit like the, the going for a walk and meeting nine foxes or whatever yeah. it was, meeting That's 52 yeah. postmen. Yes. Um, you kept bumping into him on his rounds. One of the more glamorous walks in your latest anthology involves a writer who, he's flying from California, where he's seen his mum, to Japan, where he lives. And he decides that the best thing to do to get over the jet lag is to actually stop in Singapore and walk at night for a week to somehow adjust to the different time zone before he flies home. I thought that was quite an inventive use of his time. Yeah, it's a great idea. I mean, it's slightly eccentric, but it sort of has a practical use as well. That was Pico Iyer. He wrote a delightful essay about just mooching around his, his suburb near Nara. Being suburban Japan, you know, there are about three Shinto shrines. He walks past unfriendly dogs. He says uh, the dogs don't like him because he doesn't smell Japanese. He, he smells, smells of butter. He smells buttery. <laughs> The writers who've contributed to Where My Feet Fall walk at night, in the daytime, along motorways, across cities. Comically, two of them confess they don't even like walking. Where My Feet Fall is a pretty loose anthology. I, I just left the writers go out and um, report back and uh, on any walk they chose to go on. But I think there are some common themes and I think, I think the big one is really just an appreciation of being on foot and that wonderful thing of how the world comes to you on foot. You know, as a writer, you're at your desk all day and then you break free of that desk and just go for a walk and you embrace the world, the world really. It's as simple as that. Although there are two writers in the book who don't really like walking, but I wanted a few dissenters in there as well. Well, I, th I think the one who makes the most fuss about going for a walk is Richard Ford, yeah. whose essay is the, is the very first one to start the book with. So yeah. as I started reading the book, I thought, blimey, Richard, I'm sure you could be a bit perkier about going for a walk if you tried, given that this is a book about walking. But the entire essay is about why he really, really doesn't want to go. He'd rather stay at home and have a drink. Yeah, I called him an ambulatory outlier. And I rather like having his essay starting the collection because it's up to everyone else to prove him wrong. And they do. 
for the most part. I think he is completely outnumbered, you know, fairly early on, yeah. on in the book. And, and I am a huge fan of Richard Ford. Yeah. Obviously, author of the Sports Writer Trilogy, one of the great trilogies of the 20th century. But it was a really um, eccentric kind of resistance. Everything about a walk made it's him sort of bristle. walking yeah. But then there's a, another wonderful walk by Harlan Miller, who's both an artist and a writer. And essentially, he's walking along the hard shoulder of the M11 because he's run out of petrol in this very, very posh car that he's been given in exchange for one of his etchings. But there's something, and this goes back to looking at what lies beneath your feet. And he makes this really striking point for those of us who haven't walked along the hard shoulder of the M11, that actually you imagine it to be completely free of detritus, but it's just cluttered up with so much rubbish. He's clambering over scaffolding planks and discarded tires. I mean, he almost has to sort of mountaineer over the planks at one point as he attempts to find a petrol station. But there's something so touching, actually, about it, because it, it really has to find the petrol in order to get back to the broken-down car where his children are waiting. There's something so re redemptive, almost, about the labour of the walk. Yeah, it's called Hard Shoulder, and you're absolutely right. Um, and it's sort of walking out of necessity. Most of the walks in the book are recreational or creative walks, but Harlan's walk is out of necessity, simply as you put it. His car breaks down on the hard shoulder, he has to tramp to the local Tesco, get a flagon of petrol, bring it back, and he parks his children under a tree and tells them in no uncertain terms not to move till he gets back. But you realise, and he says, you know, right at the beginning of the essay that he's not a walker and he doesn't really like walking, but you get a sense that he does, as you say, redemptive, he gets something tremendous out of that walk in a way, because it gets, and this is, brings another thing I'm fascinated in, when you're walking, when you're going forward, your mind is often going back. Walking affords you the time and space to remember the past. You know, it stokes up numerous memories and, you know, he talks to us or tells us about walks he did as, as a child and uh, watching walking races at the Olympics on the TV and all that sort of thing while he's trudging down the hard shoulder avoiding all the flotsam and jetsam. There's another aspect, I think, also that we need to sort of factor into the romance of walking, you know, the kind of the craving to walk. There's also that really sort of mournful underside of the walk. All those refugees moving from one place to another, principally on foot because they have no other choice. So there's always that sort of dark sort of tug towards that other aspect of moving across landscape having to walk because of necessity, which we shouldn't forget. Yes, you're right. I mean, that's one of the common optics of today is the refugee march anywhere around the world. And the other march out of necessity is the protest march. We're, we're such an angry lot these days that we're, we're always on a protest march somewhere to go and tell someone we don't like them or they're doing something wrong. So yes, the refugees that thin line of the refugees and the often packed streets of the protest march. Perhaps you should, in your next anthology, have an essay from someone who is walking out of necessity. Yeah, I think you're right. 
I'm feeling guilty that I didn't include one in this book. I think it's a voice that would be powerful and it seems yeah. to be so important now to hear those voices, doesn't it? It's ironic. Walking is one of those sort of simple, basic activities, yet it's also born of leisure and recreation. That's why we do it. Yet it overlooks the fact that lots of people are walking out of necessity. It's not recreational at all. Thanks for listening to Inside a Mountain. Don't forget you can listen to earlier episodes from Series 1, Walking the Jurassic Coast with international cellist Natalie Klein, Getting Lost in Strange Loops with mathematician Marcus de Sotoy, Sea Swimming with artist Anna Koska, and Searching the Gloucestershire Countryside for poet and composer Ivor Gurney.